One quick question to all of the gentlemen in the room. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? Some of you are already familiar with this, I see. This week, in the wonderful world of social media, I discovered a new trend. Like many of you, sometimes the reels keep reeling and I keep scrolling through, but there was one video that I watched this week that made me stop for a moment. I watched it a couple of times through because it felt a little bit like this one little video was directed right at me. But I only stopped for a moment. I did what we all do and just kept scrolling for a moment. But it only took a moment or two before I saw another video with the same question. And then another, and then another, and then another. And it really felt like the world was starting to make fun of me as I watched these videos. Here's how these videos work. The video opens with any random guy doing any kind of normal daily activity. He's eating, he's watching TV, he's cleaning the kitchen because these are the things that we do. On the screen, there's a prompt and it says, asking my boyfriend or asking my husband how often he thinks about the Roman Empire. And then you hear the wonderful, innocent voice of a woman. Hey babe, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? These gentlemen inevitably look up sheepishly, like they've been doing something strange and they got caught. And the surprising thing about these videos is that all of these guys reply the same way. Every single one of them says that they think about the Roman Empire way more often than you would ever imagine a person thinks about the Roman Empire. Some of them, it's like weekly. You know, I think about it weekly. They were pretty powerful. Some of these people, though, say daily. Some of these people say, uh, I don't know, when I wake up, when I go to bed? Lots of times. <laughs> those of you that have heard me preach once or twice might know that I'm one of those people that thinks about the Roman Empire daily. I really felt like somebody got into my head on this thing. I watched all those videos that night. I just couldn't help it. The next morning, I got in my car, and as I'm driving to work, there was a segment on NPR about these very videos, and I could not get myself away from it. So how often? How often do you think about the Roman Empire? The truth is that when we deal with the biblical text, the Roman Empire is never really that far from our attention. Philippi, the city that Paul addresses this letter to, to the church in the city of Philippi. Philippi was a city known as Rome away from Rome. This was a city that was populated by Roman veterans, Roman legion veterans. It was in a strategic location. Uh, there were battles fought there that were won that were very important battles. And the city of Rome considered the soil of Philippi to be as if it was the very soil of Rome itself. This was a city that knew the power of the empire and that had grasped after this power for centuries and centuries. And then when Paul wrote this letter to this city in Philippi, the city of Philippi, he was imprisoned by the Roman Empire. He was under the watch of Caesar's own personal guard, the Praetorian Guard. 
And at the end of the letter, Paul even sends his greetings from members of Caesar's household. This part of the letter is rather shocking because in Rome, Caesar is Lord. And yet there are members of Caesar's own household that send their greetings that are part of the community of Christ in Rome. These Caesars, they'd conquered Rome's enemies. They'd expanded the boundaries. They put an end to a brutal civil war. They built world wonders. They brought the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Some call it the peace of the sword to the whole known world. And of course, you know that when a Caesar died, he was declared divine and he was worshiped around this world that the Caesar had created. And the next in line, that Caesar's son would then claim to be a son of God and claim divine lordship over all the earth. And then this mere human who took a title continued this dominating cycle of grasping for more and more and more. I think this sounds an awful lot like another story that we know. There's a story in Genesis 3 where we're told that a man and a woman grasp at divinity. They're told to stay away from this one tree in this garden that's the size of a nation. But when they're told that this tree would make them like God, they can't help but grasp and reach for it. And it still happens here today We still see ways that we can grab it more and more and we cannot help but reach for that fruit. We see it in our own politics. We see it in our own economy. And unfortunately, we see it even here in our own churches, in our own homes, and in ourselves. But Paul, as he's imprisoned by Caesar, the Caesar that claims to be the Lord of the earth tells a different story. Listen to this hymn that Paul quotes again. Paul says, Have the same mind toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave. And he was found in human form. And by sharing in human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In a world that cannot stop grasping for divinity, Paul tells us a story about a God that does not grasp. The ancient Jewish sages told a story that was similar. They talked about their creator when they were considering the stories of creation that we find in those opening chapters of Genesis. These ancient Jewish sages realized there was a bit of a puzzle. They knew that before there was a creation, there was only God. There was only this creator. And if this God was going to create anything, then the first thing that this God needed to do was create space. And so in this story, this God that desires relationship and desires to make something to be in relationship with chooses to make that space. And in order to create that space, this God does something amazingly generous And this God contracts, this God withdraws God's self from a certain place. Imagine that you have a balloon and that you fill this balloon up to capacity and then you let just a little bit of the air out of it. 
But somehow when you do that, that balloon stays the same. And it allows for something else to be put into it. This is kind of what the Jewish sages are saying. God withdrew. God contracted. God emptied God's self from a certain space so that something else could fill that space. And when God did this, he made room. God made room for the waters and the lands, for the cosmos and the earth, and for all of the life that we encounter. God does this because of God's pleasure and because of a desire to be in relationship and a desire to love. This story sounds a lot like what Paul says about the Christ. That Christ and Jesus is the full incarnate expression of the God who contracted, of this God that makes room. And that this Christ, though fully divine, doesn't see divinity as something to be exploited or grasped at. Instead, Christ empties himself. Christ limits himself. Christ contracts. The Greek word that Paul uses here is a word that's, uh, the name is kenosis. Christ emptied himself in a canonic way into the form of those same two humans that we see at the beginning of the story and in the form of all of humanity that we see around us today. And then this Christ, the son of man, this human one, humbled himself to the point that he walked to a cross and gives us a full idea of what the expression of God's love allows. Caesar pretends to be a god. And as he does so, he builds crosses. But the Christ who is the son of God and who is the full expression of true divinity willingly carries those cross and is hung by that empire. I don't think that I often truly grasp how amazing, how stunning what Paul is saying here really is. He's not saying that even though Jesus could have chosen to overcome his enemies, he chose not to. The stunning thing is that Paul is saying that the very nature of God, that the very nature of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, it's not that that God had to make a choice, but that the nature of that God will not choose anything other than self-limiting. That this God is not violent, this God is not coercive or manipulative. The nature of God is displayed in Jesus in a humble act of the divine taking on flesh and dying on a cross. This God doesn't grasp. The nature of the divine is self-giving and self-emptying from the very beginning of this story. And so Paul speaks this hymn to the church in Philippi because he wants this church to know that Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is. And under this Lord, the need to grasp for more and more and more is no more. Under this Lord, we're called to draw together in unity to continue the work of kenosis. Paul says that in Christ, since you've received encouragement, since you have love, since you share in the spirit, then share in this work. Have the same mind in your church as in this Christ. Empty yourself by looking out for the needs of the neighbors around you. Not just seeing their needs as real, but seeing them as legitimate. Seeing them as even more important than your own. 
When we consider that Paul wrote these words from a prison cell, and when we consider the fact that this Christ would walk to a cross, we can see that this path of self-emptying can be a little bit frightful. It can lead to some fear and some trembling. Canonic living leads us on a path to, that can invite us into sacrifice. And sometimes helping out a neighbor with real needs can land us in uncomfortable places. I have been the recipient of the terrible way that the world reacts when we do ministry with those on the margins. When we work with the poor or the sick or the migrants or those in prison, we can earn the anger of the empire. But this is the work of kenosis. This is what it means to work out salvation with fear and trembling. If you haven't read this letter in a while, this letter to the church in Philippi, I'd encourage you to read it this week. It's pretty short. It's just four chapters long. But it's full of wisdom on what it means to follow the Christ. And when I read this letter this week, there was a line towards the end of the letter that I don't remember quite noticing the way that I noticed it this week. As Paul closes this letter, as he often does, he's thanking the church for their support. He's thanking them for the ways that they have generously given of themselves to support Paul and to support the neighbors around them. And as Paul's thanking them, he says to them that despite the weight of what they've given, they can rest assured that grace for them abounds. Paul says to them, my God will meet your every need from the riches in Christ Jesus. My God will meet your every need. As you empty yourself, my friends, my God will fill you once again. You may think about the empire often. You may think about its claims to authority. You may even think about its claims to divinity and the way that the empire grasps and grasps for more. But in this kingdom of God, we make room for one another because God first made room for us. And we trust that in doing so that this God will meet our every need. And so in the name of the God who makes room and the son who empties himself and the spirit who works in us to will and to want for God's good pleasure, amen.